0: This episode was for sure one of the most challenging ones so far. Why? Well, first, because I talked about art and sculptures, something that is extremely visual, and I know this is a podcast. And second, because I talked about art and sculptures, and I'm well aware this is a science podcast. However, Mr. Noah Brock does art installations to portray some really interesting scientific concepts. I really encourage listeners to check Mr. Brock's website, www.nz. B sculpture.com to check out the art installations we mentioned during the episode or not and let your imagination fly check it out welcome to science stories
1: <laughs> Welcome to Science Stories. dum 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 dum
0: All right, welcome everybody to a new episode of Science Stories. Today I'm really happy that I have Mr. Noah Brock here at the studio here in San Marcos. He got his master's in fine art in Florida State University. But since you're here, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure.
1: I'm Noah Brock. I'm currently the Makerspace coordinator at the Alkek Library at Texas State. But my background is in creating artwork. I'm a sculptor.
0: Yeah, I actually met Mr. Brock at the makerspace of the university, which is an amazing space, I have to say. It's out there. It's free for everybody that's affiliated with the university, and they have all sorts of machines. We're going to talk about that later on. But
1: do you mind if I ask you, what is art? Sure. (laughs) Uh, I think art is anything. Art is whatever you want it to be. And it's all subjective what you call art might not be what i call art but that doesn't really matter i don't think you can really put that much of a definition on art because of that if you spend time on something and and you put this dedicated idea together and maybe you don't fully see it to the end but you could still call that art and i might not but that that would still be art then like, for example, the,
0: the famous case of the banana taped to the wall mm-hmm. in, in the museum. What,
1: why is that art? Because somebody called it art. Huh. Th- that's all it takes. Now, you might not perceive that as art, and I might not either, but somebody did. So does that mean that it's not?
0: So imagine you had to do the exercise of writing an algorithm for a robot that goes explore another planet. Mm-hmm. And he's going to find different kind of objects. And he has to classify some of them as artistic objects and some of them as other kinds of objects. Mm-hmm. What what would you put into that algorithm? I, is it possible to create an algorithm to uh, do that?
1: I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- and then the other thing is like, well, who's writing the algorithm?
0: <laughs> if If you had to write the algorithm, what what would you?
1: I don't think you could easily classify things as art you have to have a large collective input to do something like that I don't think one person could or one robot could say this is art but that also goes with the thing that I just said the robot could call it art and maybe that's what makes it art like (laughs) it it is very like open-ended and subjective like that and the f- maybe it's the process of the robot actually calling it art that makes it art or maybe not. It, it's too open. <laughs> it's,
0: uh, I know. I, I just want to yeah. <laughs> know your opinion about it. Yeah, I'm super outside of my comfort zone here, <laughs> <laughs> by the way. And then what is a sculpture?
1: So, I mean, I guess traditionally a sculpture would be an object that is created by somebody that calls themselves an artist. And, I, I described it like that because like maybe traditionally you would car- carve it out of a, a block of plaster or marble or something like that.
0: Yeah, the, the Oxford definition says it's the art of making two or three dimensional representative or abstract forms, especially by carving stone or wood or some other material.
1: But I think the that word of sculpture or a sculptor it has changed a lot. I call myself a sculptor to other people just because if I said something else that is maybe more accurate, they might not fully get it. And I still have to, I always have to create some sort of physical thing. So that's why I would call myself a sculptor. But I could call myself an artist. That's a broader term. Or I could call myself an installation artist. But not everybody understands what that means so I'm always trying to just relate to whoever I'm talking with. Do you mind if we dive into your kind of work? Sure let's do it.
0: The reason I invited Mr. Brock today to science stories is that you use art to convey or or to transmit you 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 would be able to explain it better but you want to show and demonstrate some scientific principles through your art is that correct?
1: Yes that's correct.
0: So, when I read your artist's statement from your website, you start by saying that science and mathematics provide a basics to examine our physical world, while art and philosophy help to explain our perception of it. Since our perfection does not always match up to what science and math predicts, how can we discern reality from simulation? And I have so many questions. <laughs> Doesn't science and math also help explain our perception of reality?
1: Our perceptions are not the same. So me and you or me and anybody else, we're going to see the world differently. And uh, sometimes I'll say like, well, you know that the sky is blue, but what is that blue? Is that bright blue? Like some weird shade of blue? Our blues aren't the same, but we assume they are because we have to be able to talk to each other about it.
0: But there are objective ways of determining what wavelength or what particular blue it is.
1: Right. But the way that our brains process that and the way that we see it personally, there's no way that I can show you what I see. And so my artwork is kind of going towards that and pointing out these phenomenons that can occur in front of you, but your experience is going to be completely different than somebody else.
0: Why do you say that our perception does not always match up to what
1: science and math predicts? So our perceptions don't always match up because we're controlled by other forces like we have emotions we have all of these different stimuli that are acting upon us and that what is what makes each one of our experiences unique so you can always look at the math and the science and the way that that kind of displays and sort of rationalizes our experience and what we see in front of us or what we feel in front of us, but you're not gonna always perceive that the same way as somebody else would. Like you can talk about like riding in a car at 60 miles per hour, one person might experience that as terrifying and another person might experience that as fun. So it's, it's a completely different thing to them. I mean, yeah,
0: I, I, I agree. But some, some there's something about, about this phrase that is still... So our perception always does not always match up to what science and math predict.
1: Well, w- we as people can't always perceive certain things that science and math can explain. And there's different phenomena that can occur that even science and math haven't fully explained yet. So there's always this weird area in our perception when stuff like that happens. Yeah, there might be some way that those two fields can start to explain it, but they're kinda left open ended. And I think that's where I I get really interested in making some sort of artwork or art piece that kind of points at those types of things.
0: Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about that because your your pieces are really they l- definitely raise a lot of questions for different like different impressions on different viewers, right? Would you would you say that?
1: Yes, definitely. Okay.
0: Here, I noticed that you kind of left philosophy outside of science.
1: Do you, do you not consider it a form of science? Or I think that was more just for wording, okay. but it is a little different in my mind. It is a way to sort of talk about our perceptions more rationally and try to rationalize how our minds experience the world and how we fit into that because you start getting into this weird area that is sometimes really difficult for us as people to even explain it's like talking about different dimensions so like we live in a 3D world well what about a fourth dimension what is that and but we it's hard for us to really understand what that is because we don't live in that we don't know that and so it's only ever just talked about and you can't experience it so Philosophy is like, in my eyes, a way to kind of explain what we experience and what we see and the way that we interact. And there's all of these different things that come together and it kind of fills this gap in. And yeah, it's still definitely towards like more a type of scientific field, but there's not as many ways to state things as facts and i think that's where the big difference is for me
0: and i have to ask you this because you say how can we discern reality from simulation and i'm sure everybody has heard or asked himself the question do we live in a simulation right what do you think
1: i don't know (laughs) and i don't know if we'll ever know how would you like it could just be we're in this simulation that is just so well set up that you can't tell it from reality, but then what is reality? How do you even know what reality is? And it's because you're you're raised in what you call reality. It doesn't mean it is, but you trust that it is because that's all that you know. And only when presented with an alternative like a simulation would you be able to compare it to that, but... It's all relative. If you don't have that comparison, then you never know. But then, does it even matter? <laughs> I, I was going to...
0: I, so, I looked a little bit, the scientific literature, if there was any article, scientific article, that tried to prove or dis- disprove whether we're living in a simulation or not. And there's one piece in 2003, I think it is, that it's kind of th- the only one I could find. And he never says... He never provides an answer, of course. He just discusses the probability whether we can... Like, uh, certain things can need to happen for us to be part of a simulation. And one of them is that humans have evolved to such a state that we are already simulating other forms of life. Mm-hmm. And by probability, species would go extinct before you reach that state. Therefore, it's unlikely that that happens. And if that, hap- if that happens... It's unlikely that they're gonna simulate past forms of their own life. Yeah. So he never he never says no, we're not living a simulation, but he he says it's really unlikely. And then another other scientific articles that were not uh, published in peer-reviewed articles, just scientific pieces written by by scientists, but mm-hmm. not in, in peer-reviewed scientists. They say some say it's fifty-fifty, some say it's no, some say it's yes. So definitely, there's no consensus within the scientific community whether we're living in a simulation or not
1: right and i mean that's intriguing to me but I, I mean there's plenty of different things in the world that exist that point out these things like tons of movies like the whole matrix series is all about that and i think when that came out then it kind of opened a lot of people's eyes like oh maybe this is what we're doing we don't really know but i mean it they 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 leave a lot of stuff out of that kind of thing. <laughs> if,
0: if you knew for sure that we were living in a simulation, would that change your life in any way?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think it would change, for me personally, maybe not. And I think it's maybe just about, like, are you happy with where you are? And if you learn, oh, somebody's been pulling the strings the whole time and you're not happy how you are, well, yeah, you're probably going to start making drastic changes because you realize you might try to be getting out of that simulation, but you only know that simulation then. So how do you change it? And it gets into like a really weird mind-bending area.
0: I had this conversation with a friend, and we kind of both agreed that since the actions within this simulation, whether we're living in a simulation or not, but imagine we're living in a simulation, since the actions that we do in the simulation have consequences also in the simulation it's the same right right it doesn't matter it doesn't it it shouldn't matter
1: right the simulation is your world exactly so (laughs) you don't know anything outside of that it's like you're going to be born again into some other area and you're completely lost then so that would be scary Uh, that would your fear of the unknown is going to happen and you're just not going to know what to do
0: (laughs) okay do you mind if we go through your latest pieces of art, and you talk us through the scientific um, concepts you want to convey. Yeah, let's okay. do it. I really like your, your installation that is called Unseen Presence. Is, is it okay to name it installation?
1: Yeah, okay. yeah, because it's definitely not there anymore.
0: Okay, because it it was tep- a temporary right. piece, kind of. Do, do you mind describing what it was?
1: Sure. Um, Unseen Presence was an uh, installation at this place called Lichgate in Tallahassee, Florida. And it was a way to show the presence of this massively old oak tree that was on the site. And the only, the main reason why people went to this site was to see this oak tree. And it involved creating rings of bahia hay around the tree and i ended up spacing them using a fibonacci sequence working outward from the trunk of the tree all the way out and and we're talking like a pretty massive tree this tree is something like 300 something feet in diameter at the the widest part of the branches and most people know that trees are usually just as big underground so there's half of that that you can't see, but it was more about the kind of aura or ambiance that you get on this site when you go there. It's not just, oh, there's this really big old tree. You feel something else, and it's this other something that I was trying to convey.
0: You mentioned the Fibonacci sequence. Can you tell us what the Fibonacci
1: sequence is? So it's a mathematical sequence of numbers which is occurs naturally in nature and you can see this in like spirals and shells and a nautilus shell is always used as a example of that but it's a repeating sequence that never ends and it it, i forget what it actually is
0: it's one one two three five eight thirteen twenty one and and it goes goes on Um, And the property, so the characteristic to make it to the sequence is that the next number is the sum of the two previous numbers, right? Yes. So it's one plus one, two, two plus one, three, two plus three, five, three plus five, eight. And the first time I I ever heard about this sequence, the the Fibonacci sequence, was actually when I read the Da Vinci's code. Mm -hmm. You, You read it?
1: I... I've read some of it. I never actually read the whole thing.
0: But <laughs> what, what, you didn't like it?
1: No, I, I really liked it. I just got distracted with other things, I think.
0: So it's, it's interesting because I had, I, I, I think I read it when I was like, I don't know, in high school or something, and I had already many years of math and I never have heard of this, this sequence at all. And it was pretty interesting. And I don't know if you remember when, which scene they, they mentioned this sequence. Do, do you remember?
1: I can't off the top of my so head.
0: So, there, there's a murder in at the Louvre, right? Of this top, uh, actually, the director of the Louvre. that He was a super important guy. And they call in this symbol expert that is the main protagonist of the story. Mm-hmm. And in the murder scene, there are some numbers that appear random to most people, but he goes there and, and he, he sees immediately that is the Fibonacci sequence. And so, he starts enlightening all the people in the crime scene area, and he throws some interesting facts and I wanna I wanna see if you agree with them or not, if they are correct or not. Okay. So he he explained that the number phi was derived from the Fibonacci sequence, that it's a progression of famous not only because of the sum of the adjacent terms equal the next term, but because the quotients of adjacent terms possess the astonishing property of approaching the number one point six one eight, which is phi. And this basically means that if you do five divided by three, it equals something close to one, one point six one. And if you do eight divided by five, it's the same. And thirteen divided by eight, and the hi- and the l- higher the numbers, the closest you get to this phi number. Mm-hmm. And and for example, he says that this number is everywhere in in nature. For example, if you divide the number of female bees by the number of male bees in a beehive in the world, you get phi. That sunflower seeds grow in opposing spirals and the ratio of each rotation diameter to the next is phi. For example, if you measure the distance from the tip of your head to the floor and then divide that by the distance from your belly button to the floor, you get phi. Mm -hmm. And then if you... Measure the distance from your shoulder to your fingertips and then divided by the distance from your elbow to your fingertips, you also get phi. Does this make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. Is is this true? I I don't know if it's exactly true. I'd have to like measure my arm or something. But (laughs) I, I believe it though, because it is this reoccurring number that happens all around us. And there's a reason for that. But we don't always know exactly the reason for it It, when nature builds these things it's because it can build in certain patterns that make it structurally stronger uh there's a bunch of different ways that it helps but there's other stuff going on there like nature knows certain things that just happen intuitively whereas like if you're trying to recreate nature it gets a lot more challenging
0: you say when you describe the installation that we cannot accurately conclude the age of the tree do do you say this because the models for determining tree age are not accurate or because we would need to actually chop the tree to look at the rings inside the tree the tree
1: that that's mostly the case um (laughs) the only way to accurately say how old the tree is is to take a core sample from the tree and that will ultimately kill the tree so You're trying to, like, show the significance, the age of this tree, but the only way to do that is to actually kill it. And so nobody's ever going to do that. And, yeah, you can use different models to sort of estimate an age range, but because it's nature, there's no one size fits all. There's no one way to determine all of that. They could look at, like, the whole... Span of the branches, they could look how wide the trunk is, they could look at how tall it is, and they could make a somewhat accurate guess. But I read accounts like when I was doing that whole installation of different old oak trees around at least the southeastern United States, and there's still ones up in South Carolina. I think there's one that they were estimating to be 2,000 years old. Wow. And there's another one that had died somewhat recently and they did core sample it afterwards and they determined it was a whole lot older than they thought it was. Wow. So they still can't fully grasp that until you actually look at the science of it.
0: Yeah, I actually went into kind of a rabbit hole considering it was the first option of the question I asked you that the models are not accurate enough. Mm-hmm. And I worked, and I went and looked into the scientific literature what it, what it said about the models we have for predicting the age of a tree based on the ring analysis. Mm-hmm. And again, there's no consensus of how accurate it can be. The, the there was kind of a review paper that says that if the tree is super old, it's more accurate, or if it's super young, it's more accurate, and then you have a period in the middle that is not so accurate, and the the mm-hmm. accuracy of the model is is less. And this is because you don't know. So it depends whether the tree is shaded or not. And, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of environmental factors that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to know precisely. And therefore your model will, will suffer for that.
1: Right. And you'd have to know like what were the living conditions of the tree over its entire lifetime. Was there a drought this year? Was, was there torrential rain pours? Cause that's going to affect the growth and, and you would, might be able to pinpoint that when you're looking at the rings and the Tree. If you take a core sample, but you would have to know what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, and yeah, and you wouldn't want to kill the tree, right? And <laughs> um, what about your your piece entropy?
1: So that piece um, was an installation again, but it was based on like an object that I had created, and that whole piece started from the idea of being able to create an environment that shows entropy which is the study of disorder in a system and how that system will slowly work towards order and so i had the idea that well i want to brighten a light the closer people get to it and if you get too close you're going to be blinded and you're going to want to back away so eventually you will find a location in that installation space that's comfortable. And so now you've found that state of order in a disorderly system. Wow,
0: that's that's so good. So interesting. Yeah, that's really good. Can you describe what the... So for the people that are listening, what the piece actually looked like, if you had to describe it, what, what, what would you somebody be seeing?
1: So it was a... And it still exists. It's just in a crate somewhere right now. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a icosidodecahedron, which... Um, which means? Has hexagonal sides and triangular sides. And I'm trying to remember how many sides that actually was. <laughs> I'd have to look it up again.
0: Actually, all, all these arts uh, and pieces and installations that we're talking about are all in your website?
1: Correct, yes. What
0: is what is your website so people can check them out?
1: Uh, NoahZBrock.com or NZBeakSculpture.com.
0: Yeah, and I, I highly recommend people looking looking at them because it will yeah you'll get more the visual to yeah. <laughs> go along
1: with what i'm talking about
0: yeah <laughs> so at some point when you approach the piece the light goes out mm-hmm. and and this you say that represents entropy
1: well not necessarily when the light goes out so what that was the goal there was if you get so close that you're willing to blind yourself essentially to get that close to almost touch it the light turns out which will then force you to move away and then the light comes back on and so you realize you hit this limit of how close you can get because i ideally i would have a light that was so bright that it just completely blinds you but that wasn't going to be possible. It it would be too expensive, and there's too too much power involved. And it, I also don't want any kid buddy to get actually but, but hurt. Uh,
0: of course, <laughs> but why would you? Why, why would that be good for for what you were trying to say?
1: Well, if it got so bright that it's like as bright as the sun, yeah, you're not going to look at it. You're not going to want to look at it. But some people would. So I have <laughs> to think about like how how do people try to mess with this or how do they break the system that I'm trying to create? And yeah, ultimately they will at some point. <laughs> but turning the light off was an easier solution because then, okay, you're in a dark room now and you can't see anything. Your, your eyes have been looking at this really bright thing and now you can't see anything at all, no matter what. Like only way you'd be able to see anything is if you kept your eyes closed the whole time. But then you wouldn't know that the light turned off.
0: It could be also an interesting, and this is me mm-hmm. thinking out of the blue, an, I- an interesting way of, so the piece is kind of shy in a way, right? When you when you get close to it, it turns the light off and mm-hmm. you have to go away. <laughs> <laughs> it could be another way to represent being introverted or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> but that's really interesting. Yeah.
0: Mr. Brock, we have to do a short break and we'll be back after after a short break. Okay? Okay. We're listening to Science Stories.
1: Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science stories. Science stories. great song yeah
0: (laughs) before the break we were listening to happy idiot by tv on the radio and now we're listening to cream on chrome by ratatat yeah and you picked these songs yeah i did what um do you mind if i ask you why
1: they're just songs that i've grown up listening to i mean cream on chrome is somewhat newer but ratatat i've been listening to them since i don't know when early college i guess It's pretty cool. I I didn't know it and
0: it's super cool, yeah. All right. Can you tell us about your your piece that is called Vitruvian Reflection, please?
1: Yeah. So that piece is called That Name (laughs) because it's based off of uh, the Vitruvian man that Leonardo da Vinci kind of drew out and most people have seen this drawing it's like showing like a male figure with their arms spread out and within a circle and like your arm span is a certain total of like how many heads you have in you (laughs) so like there's eight heads in your whole arm span is
0: it true that it's the most accurate representation of a man that has ever been drawn at
1: least something like that (laughs) (laughs) but my my piece was based off of my dimensions and so the the ring is it's a circular ring and it's like a quarter inch thick made out of aluminum and it has a reflective inner surface on it but the ring is eight inches wide and the ring is 76 inches in diameter and because that's my reach and then eight inches wide is the height of my head and so it, I was using that as a basis of making a infinity mirror, a ring that will be mirror lined on the inside that can reflect back on itself. And so if you go inside of this ring, uh, what happens? What do you see? And a lot of us have seen infinity mirrors before, like a mirror in the front and the mirror in the back. Mm-hmm. And you just see this long hallway. Well, what happens when it's circular? You don't actually see that that often. Cause it's not that easy to make. You, Making a perfect circle mirror is challenging, but uh, I originally installed it hanging horizontally at eye level so you can easily walk inside of it and then see what that looks like. And if you get in the right spot, it warps your vision all the way around. So you see your face in 360, Wow, like, like all the way around. And yeah, you can't really see the back of your head very well but because your head's blocking the back of your head. But you can but, see like the sides of your face and everything stretched like- out.
0: Sorry, you don't see many faces all around. You see your face actually in 3D. Like
1: yeah, it stretches out. So you'll, you'll see like your eyes and your nose and your mouth like in the middle, but then it stretches out your whole face all the way around to your peripheral vision. And if you turn your head, obviously you see the same thing. So uh, you can't really look at the back of your head. But it is disorienting. And that's one thing I didn't know was going to happen until i made it but that was kind of my thought process i wanted to see what this would do to your perception of your surroundings because it's changing what you would expect to see
0: why do you say it's disorienting
1: well i didn't even know this was going to happen until i actually experienced it but when you go into that and you look at that you start to lose the connection to the real world around you and this is just a perceptual thing and it everybody gets affected differently but it made me feel like i was going to fall down Hmm. and it wasn't until i touched something or grabbed onto something else that was like back on the floor or something that i knew was there that i felt connected back to the real world
0: and i I saw pictures of it floating so hanging from Mm -hmm. the roof and kind of floating so you can get inside, right? Right. But I also saw pictures of him standing, mm-hmm. kind of like laid on the floor, standing vertically. Right. Does he have the same effect like that?
1: I didn't think that it would initially, but it still does. <laughs> and not not exactly the same. The reason I started standing it upright was because it didn't have it wasn't easy to install hanging in the Mm -hmm. middle of a room i mean it's big heavy ring it probably weighs like 50 pounds and stringing that up so people can safely walk in the middle of it it's not the easiest installation to do so i was looking at easier ways to uh, display this piece and also when you stand it up on end it looks like the vitruvian man circle so it was kind of hinting at that but what I realized is when you walk near it, you start to see all of these reflections in it. And some of them are you and you'll get closer and closer. And then you start really getting into it and looking into it. And you start to lose that connection to your surroundings again. And it wasn't maybe as intense, but it still had that same effect.
0: And since it was made for your dimensions, did people of different dimensions that you have to adjust in order to match that perfect spot or is it anybody that gets in there gets at least a sensation
1: i I think all it takes is just getting your eye level close to the middle of it and so you kind of have to lean over when it's standing Mm -hmm. upright and when it's a circle hanging it doesn't really matter you just need to get your eye level at that so like when i installed it hanging i think i put it at 60 inches from the floor to the middle of the ring and yeah there's plenty of people taller than that and unfortunately people shorter than that it's hard for them to actually get up to that height Mm. but i'm also pretty short anyway so (laughs) i figured that was a good height to start with what about your
0: horizons between
1: so that was a installation that i actually only did once and it again involved mirrors and light specifically and i was trying to create an environment where there are all of these little things that start to pop up that you wouldn't notice initially. And it's kind of like when you go into a new space and you just sit there for a while and you start to analyze and look around, you start to notice more and more things that you might not have noticed like first time that you went in.
0: Can Can you describe what, what it, it looks like for, uh, yeah. if you walk into a room and this installation is there, what would you see?
1: So it's a, Almost completely dark room, the only light source is a spotlight up in the ceiling and it's pointed down at a mylar circular cone that's slowly rotating
0: what's a mylar circular cone
1: so uh, a piece of mylar is just like a reflective uh, mirror type like film and so like probably heard of mylar balloons it's like shiny silver it's it's basically just an easy way to make a, a cone-shaped mirror. Mm-hmm. And that was just sitting on a little turntable motor turning around on the floor. And then there's just a direct spotlight pointed at it.
0: And you say that as this line of light scans the space, certain reflections appear that they were not previously visible or noticed. Why does that happen?
1: When that beam of light hits that mylar cone, it's roughly 45 degrees and that light will then bounce horizontally and make a light ring around the room and the cone was slightly tilted so that ring kind of shifted as it's rotating around but i scattered throughout the room different reflective objects that at first glance when you go into this dark room you won't notice them because they're hidden you're drawn Mm. to this bright light in the middle and the longer you stand in there you start to notice these little things happening when that light ring around the room just barely skips by it it'll cause another reflection to shoot across to the other side of the room or uh, any myriad of things i put a whole bunch of different things in there
0: like like what like little pieces of mirrors uh.
1: yeah i i used to take apart like projectors there'd be huh. different prisms in there um i had like some different concave mirrors that i would set up And all of this was kind of like an experiment. I wanted to see what these effects were. So I was constantly changing this. And I would invite people in to just talk about what they saw and what they experienced and how they felt about it.
0: Do you have any experience that you actually remember? Something that stands out that somebody said?
1: I remember one of my uh, fellow grad students at the time said that they really enjoyed it but only after they stayed in there for like a longer period of time like when they first went in they just thought they just didn't pay attention to those little things and that was the whole point so i think that made me think about well how how do you get people to notice those types of things you you really have to get them in that mindset like somebody coming in that doesn't want to spend a lot of time in there they're not going to get it so you have to kind of be in that state of mind before you actually look at something like that.
0: Does it happen to you a lot that once you explain the art piece, people cherish it way more?
1: Sometimes. But I actually don't like to explain okay. the art piece. I, I'd much rather people develop their own perceptions and their own interpretations of what I was trying to do. Because even whatever they come up with, That's better than what I came up with. Like, I don't want my idea to uh, ruin your experience and not necessarily ruin it, but I don't want it to kind of control what you're trying to experience.
0: Yeah, you don't want to bias them into... Exactly. uh, Exactly, yeah. And now there's several pieces that, I don't know if they're similar or not, but they they try to convey a similar concept, right? That it's the Newton's bucket... Mm-hmm. The parabolic shift and the liquid mirror. Mm-hmm. Is it right that I'm saying that the the three of them kind of point in the same direction? Yeah. Okay. What is the physics property that you're trying to show with the Newton's bucket?
1: So Newton's bucket is. At uh, first,
0: please can you can you tell what it, what it looks like?
1: Yeah, it's basically a kind of low wide pan of water. I think it's like. 20 inch, 24 inches in diameter and about 6 inches tall on the outside. Just think of like a circular oil pan or something like that. And it has water in it and it spins around and it creates a perfect parabolic surface on that water so it doesn't actually look like water anymore.
0: It looks like a mirror. Exactly. It's amazing. Why does the water form this parabolic shape?
1: So, it, Based on the name, Newton's Bucket, it's an experiment that Isaac Newton performed, and his goal was to try to prove that absolute space existed or exists. And his experiment would be tying a bucket with the handle to a string and tie it to a tree. And then you just spin the bucket a bunch and then let it go. And it's gonna spin. And then it's going to throw the water outward and the water will start to form this parabolic surface. And if the bucket's perfectly balanced, it's going to make it look like the water's not moving anymore. And that force, I guess you could call it centrifugal force. But he was trying to prove that it isn't really a force that we can fully define. Einstein later came back and disproved that was proving there's absolute space or a point in space that we are rotating around. But these three sculptures that we're talking about are pointing towards the fact that they're rotating relative to something. And we are rotating relative to something. Like we, most of us at least accept the idea that we're rotating around on the earth, the earth spinning on its own (laughs) axis. So we're moving right now, but we don't know that. We don't perceive that in our most like immediate surroundings.
0: You said that the water appears to stop moving is it is it moving or is it not moving?
1: Well, it's relative. <laughs> so, it's it's moving relative to us cuz we're standing on the outside of this spinning pan. But if you were inside the pan, the water's not moving relative to the pan anymore. So the the water is stationary. So if you put like a drop of ink or a, a piece of lint or something on the surface of the water it will stay in the same exact spot in the pan now it's going to look like it's spinning around to us on the outside but it will be in the exact same spot
0: that's crazy i mean that's amazing so basically it's turning in our eyes Mm -hmm. and you drop a drop of ink and the drop of ink stays there because the water inside is
1: well that drop of ink is still going to be turning relative to us
0: but it won't diffuse into the rest of the water correct or, a, or at least it will do it slowly like it will do slowly, it yeah. normally mm-hmm. that's crazy
1: it'd be the same as you drop in a drop of water into a non-moving bucket it's just going to slowly kind of disperse out from that single point in the bucket
0: wow that's super interesting the, what was the reaction you get from the people when they see that
1: so that piece was so well balanced that it actually made people not realize that it's water. Wow. They, they would think it's a different material and then they would just ignore it. They, they <laughs> wouldn't even pay attention to the fact that it was spinning. They didn't think it was spinning because I tried to paint the pan and perfectly balance it so it, it's an illusion. It looks like it's stationary. And so I, I had this installed at Art Basel in uh, Miami, Florida. And I would start prompting people to touch the black part of it, which was the water, but they didn't know that.
0: Maybe add like something that's uneven, not uneven or a different color so that people notice that it's Mm -hmm. spinning or?
1: Well, I I think it's also going back to like horizons between where if you look close, you'll know it's spinning, Mm. but you have to know what you're looking for. And, It's not perfect balance. You can spot these things, but it's also about like just your attention to it. You can walk in a room and just not notice that there's a piece of gum on the floor and step on the piece of gum. Mm -hmm. Like everybody does this stuff.
0: And the the parabolic shift, do you agree if I say that it looks pretty similar to Newton's bucket, but it has a hole in the middle? Correct, yes. And yet the water does not spill over the hole. Mm -hmm. Why does that happen?
1: So it's because that water is thrown outward and it's in the same spot in the pan. So the parabolic shift is like a four foot diameter with a 20 inch hole in the middle. And so same exact concept as Newton's bucket. It's just larger, but I've added this extra variable to kind of, again, point at this phenomenon that occurs that we don't always experience in nature. Like you wouldn't see this perfectly happening in nature, but it can occur and then you start to see this material that you never thought possible could do something like that. And it stays in that pan and not run down the middle because it's being thrown outward with this centrifugal force.
0: And for people to imagine, you have the outside walls of this pan. Mm-hmm. that it, They are higher than the inside walls of the hole inside of the pan. Mm-hmm. And the water seems to align itself from the small wall to the tall wall, right? Right. And it doesn't go into the hole.
1: Yeah, and I I had to get the speed of the whole pan spot on based on the amount of water in the pan because I was trying to make this perfect curve from that whole edge up to the outer edge. And yeah, if I spun it too fast, the water's flying out the outside. Or if I turn it too slow, it's going to drain into the middle.
0: Amazing. Super interesting. And finally, the, the liquid mirror.
1: So that piece was just an even larger version of Newton's bucket and parabolic shift. I didn't put a hole in this one just because of the amount of water that it was going to take. But it was 10 feet in diameter. And it had about 50 gallons of water in it and you would experience this in a different way because now it's much larger than you it's much larger than a person so when you start to take that scale up larger than human scale it has a more profound effect on people and there's a whole lot of logistics that go into making a 10 foot diameter pan spin with 50 pound or 50 gallons of water in it i think that's roughly 250 pounds and have it stable inside of a building and not you know drain all that onto the floor
0: it's super hard right to install in and
1: yeah and i, I had to make all of that myself because yeah. who makes a giant spinning pan <laughs> yeah nobody does Nobody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> mr brock we're gonna do our last break and then we come back with more okay science stories okay
1: yep science stories Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. stories.
0: All right, so now I have a little bit more of general questions mm-hmm. regarding your art. And I'm kind of looking for stories here, basically. Have you ever accidentally broken a piece before it's ready?
1: Oh, yeah, that's happened plenty of times.
0: Yeah? <laughs> like bad, like the day before or something like that?
1: Uh, I've definitely had a lot of installation issues, like what we were just talking about, Liquid Mirror, when I was installing that. it It took me a few days to install that and the motor actually i fried the motor that spins it oh the friday before the show opens or something like that so i needed to get a replacement motor and my original motor actually came from a treadmill that i took apart that i got for free so (laughs) how do i find a replacement motor well i jumped on ebay found the exact one Got it shipped, and it showed up in time, swapped it in, and it worked. Did you buy
0: the motor, or did you have to buy another treadmill?
1: I bought another motor, but it Ah, it was from a treadmill. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody had pulled it off and put it on eBay.
0: Wow. But you pulled it off? Yeah. Nice. Have you ever broken a piece on purpose?
1: Yeah. There's definitely been things that I've made that I didn't like, or didn't like the outcome of it. And I did that a lot when I was doing, like, metal casting because the actual piece that I made was actually still usable material, so I would break it up and melt it back down and turn it into something else.
0: And what's the funniest thing you've heard about your work? You know, when, when you walk into the exhibition and people don't know you're the artist, and you're just there hanging out and listening what people say and watching people's reaction?
1: I, I think it's always interesting to be like that fly on the wall and just hear how people perceive it especially people that are not readily exposed to to art because i i think that is more interesting to me and i remember when i would install the entropy piece people would always be trying to figure out how to trick it how to like make it not work and usually they would find some combination of movements that would just like make it not react as fast or something, but they'd be trying to figure out wha- how it worked. And they'd have all sorts of crazy ideas and like, <laughs> um, but that wasn't the point of it, but maybe that was their experience. Maybe they really enjoyed trying to figure that out. Have you ever seen someone messing with one of your pieces? Yeah, definitely. And? Well, it, if I was there, I would usually go over and say, hey, don't touch that or something <laughs> like that. But... I, I always have to think about, like, how is somebody going to mess with this? And if it's installed in, like, an art gallery, there's usually this kind of unspoken rule that you don't touch the stuff. But I've also made stuff that you're supposed to touch. And then it's the opposite. How do you get people to touch it? Because they're afraid to. But for the most part, I try to think of those things and, and make them people-proof somehow. Nowadays, you
0: work at the makerspace space Mm -hmm. from Texas State University. And among the many machines that are available there, there is one that it's a water jet cutter. Mm -hmm. How come water can cut through almost anything?
1: So that is actually not true. Okay, (laughs) The, The water jet, water can cut through some materials. It just depends on how dense it is. Or if you've ever used, like, a pressure washer before to clean a sidewalk, something like that, you can see it starts taking off little bits of the sidewalk.
0: Okay, but this machine can cut metal. Right. So, how d- how is water able to cut metal? So How, how does the machine work?
1: Just high pressure. And so, it actually uses a garnet abrasive. And that abrasive is actually what does the cutting. The water is just the propellant for the abrasive. So... Uh, The one that we have pressurizes water at about 30,000 PSI, and it pulls that garnet stone, it's like sand, into the water stream and then pushes that through the material. And it's like rapid erosion. That's what happens on the beach, like when rocks wear down. And that will um, cut any material, doesn't matter what it is.
0: What's the abrasive agent at the beach?
1: Um, Just time and... uh, waves, water, moving stuff around. So it is actually similar.
0: But what's in the water that's abrasive?
1: Well, it might be other abrasive things. It could be already crushed rock, like sand moving around, or it could be actual rocks. So two rocks rubbing against each other. They'll wear down over time. It just takes a lot more time.
0: And I guess you've been there for a long time and you've seen many, many projects. Mm -hmm. Do you have any projects that blew your mind?
1: There was this one student that had in his head that he was going to make a remote controlled sailboat and he did and i mean he was an engineering student so he definitely had some background in figuring out construction techniques and whatnot but this was outside of school he just wanted to make this and he built a two scale 45 inch long sailboat i think it was a three mast And he built it the same way you would build a full-size sailboat. So he built ribs and he cut all of the pieces for those ribs on the laser cutters. And he stripped, did it with wood strips, fiberglass the hull. Um, Some of this he did outside of the space. But he built the whole control system for it using radio control so he can control the rudders. And uh, even 3D printed the keel, which he then ended up casting with lead outside of the space. But he was able to prototype these things in the space. Wow. Amazing, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, I don't even think I could do that. and Not necessarily that I would want to, but he just had this drive to complete this whole project. And I think it took him over a year to do it, but he completed it and he sent me a video of him sailing it around a lake. Wow. That's cool. That's pretty really cool and a funny project
0: or something that was extremely weird
1: uh there was somebody that was actually printing a well this this has been a whole lot of uh different like cosplay stuff like costumes for different things like anything that's ever in pop culture always ends up in the makerspace like when um that show squid game was going on well there's tons of those masks being printed uh, but there's always weird, interesting things going on. Like we have a, a old, really old Roomba in there and um, he keeps getting a new hat every couple weeks because he tends to lose it underneath the machines. <laughs> so it's, it's always something new in there. Mr. Brock, I actually have a,
0: a question from the audience. Mm-hmm. Someone says that science dissemination would be greatly benefited if it collaborated with art. Do you think there is a lack of projects and spaces for this to happen?
1: I agree with that. And I think we're collectively moving towards more spaces that encourage this type of thing to happen. But yeah, there's always a lack of that. And there's always a lack of um, the connection between all of these. We tend to get siloed off in these different areas, these different fields that we're working within. And... It is changing. I mean, working at the library at Texas State, I can see it changing there. Like, we're talking about combining all this technology with different ways of creation, and it's not necessarily focused in any one field. You can pull from all these different areas.
0: Mr. Brock, um here I can tell they have people in Florida listening to this episode, and I think they might be related to you. Probably. <laughs> Um, probably your parents, you said?
1: Probably, yeah.
0: Is there anything you would like to say to them? Because actually in in your artist statement, you say that your father was an architect and your mom was an uh, artist. And they definitely influenced your path.
1: Right. So yeah, hi, mom and dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the, the way that I grew up influenced the the way that I think about the world and the way that I create things. So they were definitely a big part of that.
0: Thank you so much for being today here in in Science Stories. Did you have a good time?
1: Oh, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me.